Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I have always wanted to um, preach an entire series on a book of the Bible. We're going to do that today, okay? I promise, promise you'll be out in time for supper. Uh, please turn in your Bible to the table of contents. Because if you're like most people, you're going to need your table of contents when I tell you we're going to be in the book of Obadiah this morning. I've never preached a sermon on Obadiah. I bet that makes us even. I bet you've never heard a sermon on the book of Obadiah. It's the least read book in the Bible, scholars say, which probably makes it the coolest book that you may have never read. It's, by the way, if you're kind of flipping through there, it's after Amos and before Jonah. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's a mere 21 verses, which makes it sort of a tweet from God. It is power-packed with meaning, but it's on the short side, okay? So we're going to look this morning at this little tweet from God. Actually, for years, I would have a recurring nightmare, and and Greg's going to laugh about this. Whatever church I was serving in at the time, whether it was here with Jeremy or, or Greg Wallace as the pastor, or down in Corpus or over in Pasadena, I would dream that I'd be sitting on the front row during the church service, and the pastor would be at the pulpit, and he would say, now, beloved, before Hugh comes and preaches to us from the book of Obadiah, let's bow in prayer. And in my dream during the prayer, Greg, I'm frantically flipping through my Bible saying, where in the world is Obadiah? (laughs) So this morning, I want to exercise a demon from my dreams. I want to confront my fears and preach this message once and for all. How's that? And so I want to begin with this question. Does God have enemies? And how would you answer that question? Well, it depends on who you are, I guess. If you're you're one kind of Muslim, you would answer, well, yeah, clearly God's enemies are the Americans and the Israelis. If you're a Hindu nationalist, you might say, well, yeah, clearly God's enemies are the Muslims. But if you're an American, you might think the answer's strange. God has enemies? I mean, isn't that against the whole, you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you kind of thing, right? Or you might answer, well, I know God has enemies. They're the members of the political party to which I'm not affiliated. (laughs) Well, humans certainly have enemies. It, It is human, unfortunately, to hate. But if God has enemies, then surely we want to know who they are. We want to know how difficult it is. or We all know how difficult it is to have human enemies against us, but we can only imagine what it would be like to have the almighty living God against us. How much more difficult would it be to have God as your enemy? Many of us will recognize the name of this book, obviously, Obadiah, but we would shuffle our feet and look at the floor if we were questioned about its theme or its contents or application for us here in the 21st century. Obadiah is kind of like the spleen of the Old Testament, okay? We know it's in there somewhere, but most of us are kind of hazy about its role in the body. Is that fair enough? And yet, anybody who knows about terrorism should know about Obadiah, as should anyone who feels frustrated that injustice sometimes goes unpunished. But it's a comforting book 
to read after hearing an unsettling news report of terrorism or racial injustice or genocide or ethnic cleansing. Anytime the, anytime the innocent are targeted in mass and we're left waiting for justice to be done, the book of Obadiah reassures us that God, God doesn't have a filing cabinet full of unresolved cold cases. Oh no, he does not forget injustice. So by now, you've either found it or you've given up. But the uh, words to the text will be on the screen. So let's follow along, beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Okay, I admit at first glance this doesn't look very promising. Obadiah is a series of judgment poems set against the ancient people of Edom, a nation state that neighbored Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. And so, why should we care? Well, because there's way more going on in this little book than you might think at first glance. Here's the backstory. The people of Edom are unique because they shared a common ancestry with the, with the uh, Israelites. Let's do a little family tree here. I'm into genealogy. Follow along with me. They both belong to the family of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. Isaac married a woman named Rebekah, and they had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. We're good so far. Genesis, are y'all alive? You awake? You with me? Okay. Genesis tells the story of these twin brothers who had a very tense relationship. You remember Esau was the older brother, and by all rights, he should have received the birthright and the patriarchal blessing from his father Isaac, but Jacob took after his conniving mother, Rebekah, and he conned Esau out of receiving the birthright and the blessing. The brothers later received the names Israel and Edom, which eventually became the names of their families. The Edomites were those that were descended from Edom or Esau, and the Israelites were those who were descended from Israel or Jacob. And now you know where the Israelites got their name, right? And the Edomites and the Israelites replayed the same difficult relationship patterns of their ancestors. They're basically like the Hatfields and the McCoys, okay? So far, so good. So why is Obadiah so interested in this little two-by-four of a nation that's right next door to, to Israel? It's because he sees Edom's pride and fall as an example of how God will one day confront the pride around, among all nations and bring about their fall. So if God does have enemies, who are they? Who are the enemies of God? The answer is those who are proud. Those who are proud. The basic situation described here is around, around 587 BC, Jerusalem, where the Israelites lived, Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonian Empire. They'd been invaded, ransacked, carried off into exile, and these neighbors, just a few short miles away, the Edomites, did nothing to help them. In verse 2, God says he will make Edom small among the nations. But in verses 3 and 4, it appears that Edom thought of themselves 
as pretty high among the nations. Edom was situated somewhat like Switzerland is today, in an easily, naturally defendable position in the mountains. And their heart, their heart was very similar to their geography. Their hearts were like the terrain in which they lived. They were high, hard, certain, proud. But that's where they made a fatal error. They thought they could see everything from their high and lofty position, but they couldn't. And God says in the end that their own pride had deceived them. And that's, that's the way pride is, right? I mean, it, it, it deceives us. Pride is when, is when you and I take anything as security other than God himself. God made us. We belong to him, not ourselves. And so he will call us to account someday. There is nothing else in the world more certain, beloved. It doesn't matter how strong or prosperous, how successful you feel this morning. God, God made you and I to give account to himself, and we will. There is no final security we can have apart from him. That's what Edom was finding out. In verse 4, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Evidently, God wasn't as impressed with their high and lofty advantages as they were. But the Edomites were blind to this. And that's the nature of pride. It comes up to our ears and flatters us. It tells us things we want to believe about ourselves, but they aren't true. And we're so easily deceived. It's, uh, it, it's, it's really amazing to see the things that people so proudly put their trust in. I'm reminded of a fortification in Europe known as the Maginot Line, named after the French minister of war, Andre Maginot. Does that ring a bell with anybody? It was a line of concrete fortifications and bunkers and obstacles and weapons installations built by France in the 1930s to deter invasion from the east, from Germany. Based on France's terrible experiences with trench warfare during World War I, the massive Maginot Line was built under the assumption that if Germany ever invaded France again, they would do it in the same way they had done it during World War I. Built at a cost that exceeded $9 billion in today's dollars, the Maginot Line was invulnerable to aerial bombings and tank fire. It featured underground railways and state-of-the-art living conditions for garrisoned troops. It, it even supplied them with a newfangled invention called air conditioning. France relied smugly on the Maginot Line to provide them with a security against invasion from the east. The only trouble was... When the Germans finally invaded France, they didn't do it like they had done 20 years before in World War I. The Germans sidestepped the Maginot Line and instead came down from the north through Belgium, completely flanking the Maginot Line, making it utterly useless. Friends, that's just a little picture of anything you are trusting in to protect your life apart from God. Put all the time and planning and finances into it that you want, it still will not protect you from everything you need to be protected from. We cannot build sure and certain defenses of ourselves. 
All the obsessive attention we give to our accomplishments, our appearances, our bodies, our possessions, our 401ks, our friendships, trusting them to give us peace and security. All of these things are just extensions of our own limited power and resources. They are declarations of our own proud independence apart from God, but they will not be enough to protect us from having to stand before God and give an account of our lives. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. When God declares or decides to judge a proud nation, no recovering economy, no Department of Homeland Security, no right person in the White House can save it. A nation that puts its trust in its own strength, beloved, is a nation that will feel the limits of that strength and see the end of it, just as God promised to Edom here. It appears, beloved, that having power is one of the most trying consequences humans will ever know. It will not last. And of all people, Christians need to be able to see that and speak to it humbly with, with love. Speak to it honestly. Edom was no superpower. It was just a tiny little nation. It was a proud nation, but the kind of pride they, they had is never appropriate for creatures like us. Humility is needed before God. It's, it's the fruit of God's spirit in you. We know from Proverbs 6, it says that God hates the proud. Theologian John Stott once wrote, at every stage of our Christian development, in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Oh, this is so true in my life. <laughs> every time I think I've finally got pride licked, it sneaks around from the other side and it bites me in the rear. Here's an example. Do you realize how vulnerable we are made by our willingness to be so easily offended in this life? If we were more humble, we would find less things that offend us. If we knew more of what we deserve because of our sin and of how merciful God has been to us in Christ, we would take much less affront at other people when they treat us in a manner far less than our sins deserve. It's true for us as individuals. It's true for us as a church. The danger of our very blessings that we are enjoying as a congregation today are that we would begin to trust in them instead of the God who gives them. May God preserve us from such pride that makes him our enemy. So what had Edom done? How had their pride shown itself? In verses 5 through 16, we see that God opposes those who oppose his own people. We won't read all those verses, but let's start in verse 5. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And so here God is showing the Edomites, this is not only how they have treated the Israelites, this is how God is going to treat 
them in judgment. Verse 7, the Edomites had trusted the Babylonians, see, but now they're going to be deceived and betrayed and overpowered by the Babylonians. It says, but you will not detect it. It'll be as if the Edomites never saw it coming. Those who eat your bread, it says, that the very nation they had struck up an alliance with, Babylon, was just using them and had turned against them. The Edomites thought they were so wise, so knowing, so worldly. They thought they had seen it all and were beyond surprise. But they never saw it coming. And what we see in verses 5 through 16 is the Edomites didn't just stand idly by while the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. That, they did that, and that was bad enough. They helped. They participated in the destruction. While Jerusalem was being sacked, the Edomites plundered other Israelite cities. They worked to capture and kill Israelite refugees. They took advantage of Israel financially. They bullied Israel and looked down on them and boasted about it. They jumped in and seized the wealth, helped to plunder Israel like looters after a hurricane, stealing not from the store on the corner, but stealing from their own family store. These are their cousins. They are related together, and yet they are stealing them, stealing from them and ripping them off, and they handed over their cousins to the enemy. Do we understand that actions against God's people are actions against God? Do you remember what Jesus said to Saul out on the road to Damascus when Saul was out persecuting Christians? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's what we see in Obadiah. Actions against God's people are actions against God. Friend, you've got to understand, if you have acted in any way against God's people, you have acted against God. This is not just a description of the Edomites. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All the world is God's enemy. Yes, God has enemies, and sometimes I don't need to look any farther than the front door of my own home to find one. Me. I mean, can you imagine these poor, miserable Israelites? Let me try to paint it a little more clearly, because this really happened. This is really world history. There really was a Babylon. They really invaded Jerusalem. There really was a siege lasting about 18 months in which many of the Israelites starved to death. There was a real fall. The city was really looted and pillaged and destroyed. There really were people running from that city, screaming their heads off. They were going down the local roads they would have known, exhausted, looking for any friendly face that might protect them, might take them in, grasping at the only bread of hope of survival they might have. And do you know what they found at the end of the road? waiting for them? Edomites, their very cousins, ambushing them in a way of ingratiating themselves to the invading power of the Babylonians. Look, we captured some more for you. This was the tender mercy that Edom showed Israel in their day of need. Look in verse 10. God says through Obadiah, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. The message of Obadiah is the, 
the, the Edomites would be totally exterminated because of their unrepentant, remorseless stubbornness about their terrorism against Israel. God would wipe the planet clean of all Edomites and every trace of their bloodthirsty legacy. And that has literally happened. Think about it. Where are you going to eat after this? Well, some of you might go down to a Mexican restaurant. Some of you might go to an Italian restaurant, maybe, maybe try the Greek restaurant. Some of you may go home, have some American fare or whatever, Chinese. How many of you are going to an Edomite restaurant today after church? Have you, have you toured any holy sites in Edom? Are there any religious holidays observed by an Edomite remnant anywhere on the planet? The glaring absence of all things Edomite, beloved, is proof that God's prophecy has been fulfilled. Literally, God knows how to deal with his enemies. And that should make us all tremble just a bit. But then, but then Obadiah interjects here that the day of the Lord is near for all nations. And the promise of this kind of divine justice should encourage us especially Christian brothers and sisters around the world who find themselves under terribly unjust suffering. These have to be some encouraging words that though we suffer for Christ's sake, it will not always be. There is a day a coming, the day of the Lord, when he will right every wrong. We can't be surprised when when, when the people of the world hate us and oppose us. They hated and opposed our Savior. I mean, friends, if you, if you complain about the trials you're going through right now, who did you think you were following? I mean, come on, really? Look at what happened to Jesus. How can we complain when lesser things happen to us? This is the way of Christ. So all the more we should pray as Christians to love one another just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And yet this is another reason why baptism is so important. And we're going to baptize in just a little while. And I encourage you, some of you have been getting that holy nudge in your heart for a long time. And you know you need to be baptized. And you, you, you've held off. I want to encourage you. This is a safe place to be baptized. Okay, we haven't lost anybody in the water yet. (laughs) Baptism, though, is a way of identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection, but it's also a way of identifying with the church. Universal. We do baptism publicly because Jesus died publicly for us. It also helps us It helps remind us that we can't rely on the culture to define virtue for us. So so these first 15 verses show us clearly God does have enemies. They're the proud. They're enemies of God's own people. And it brings us to this next question. Who are the friends of God? Years ago, many years ago, one one of the songs we sang here in worship had the line, I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. In verse 13 here, God calls the Israelites, my people. I love that. My people. And you might say, wait, wait a minute now, aren't aren't all God's, aren't all people God's people? 
I mean, aren't, aren't we all God's children? I mean, we, we even sing, or we don't, but I've heard many songs where people say, we're all God's children, you know, we're, we're all, yeah, well, don't get suckered by that. We are all God's creation. We're all made in the image of God. That's awesome news. But to be a child of God denotes relationship with God. And the only way to have a relationship with God is through his son, Jesus. He who has the son has the life, wrote the apostle John over in 1 John 5. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. Have, have you ever thought of becoming one of God's people? You ever thought about what that would be like? Maybe, maybe you assumed you were by birth. Or, or by virtue of attending a church, or, or by doing something religious. I, I mean, I hear people say all the time, well, you know, I've just always believed in God. But beloved, even the, even the demons believe in God. That doesn't save them. In fact, they shudder, James writes, because they believe in God and they know they don't have a relationship with him. It's because they refuse to bow at the name of Jesus. And so should anyone tremble who does not have a relationship with God apart from Je- or through Jesus. Apart from Jesus, you can only expect the correct judgment of God for your sin. But if you receive Jesus as your substitute, the one who received the judgment for the sin of the world at the cross, then you will be saved from judgment and will have eternal life with Christ. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Scripture. Here Obadiah speaks a word of hope. Although they had been overrun by the Babylonians and hauled off in captivity and changed to a foreign land, Obadiah says in verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance, it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. There would be justice for the wicked and restoration for God's people. They will one day return from exile and regain their lost lands. And several decades after this was written, it it came true. A remnant of the Israelites were allowed to return to Jerusalem as part of the decree, as you know, of King Cyrus of Persia, who had conquered the Babylonians. But it points to more than that, so much more than that. Obadiah sees a day coming when all of God's people will be delivered. This was something more than they had ever experienced before. It points ultimately to all of God's people through the ages being gathered together in the Lord Jesus Christ. It points to a day when all wrongs will be righted. It points to a day when we will be with the Lord forever. That's our future, beloved. That's our hope of glory. That's our Jesus. He has gone to prepare a place for us. Amen? We need to bask in the comfort that God will bring justice to those who target the innocent. Genocide, racial injustice, acts of terrorism, many other species of violence make us cry out for justice. But God will bring closure and comfort in his time. That's the message of Obadiah. It came true back then. It will come true again in the future. The good news is God is watching and he won't let his enemies get away with it. I'm reminded of the burglar who broke into a nice house in a wealthy neighborhood. As he was stealing the valuables, loading them into his duffel bag, he heard a voice out of the darkness that said, Jesus is watching you. He froze and looked around and didn't see anyone. He just thought, well, that's maybe my guilty conscience. So he started to grab some more stuff and then he heard the voice again, Jesus is watching you. So he flipped on his 
flashlight and noticed a birdcage in the corner with a cover over it. The words came from the cage, and Jesus is watching you. So the thief pulled off the cover, and he saw a parrot. And he starts laughing, and he says, hey, what's your name, little fella? And the parrot said, Moses. The thief laughed and said, what kind of person would name a parrot Moses? The parrot answered, the same kind of person that would name a Rottweiler Jesus. God sees. God saw what Edom was up to. He criticized Edom's pride. He condemned their plundering and finally confirmed their punishment. And so we need to ask this next question, who is God? Look in verse 21, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion, the very last verse of the whole book, to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. There's a lot of stuff packed in that last little sentence. It means he is the king over all nations. That's really the message of this oracle. He's, he's showing both Edom and Judah that he is the king. He's even showing Babylon that he is the king. The fact that God declares himself to be the king, is that an encouragement to you? Or is it a warning? Someday each of us will stand before him whose eyes are like fire and give an account of our lives. We will stand before the very one who made us and who judges us. This is a meeting you cannot avoid. You cannot delay it. And on that day, we will all trust in something. You'll trust in your obedience to the Ten Commandments, or you'll trust in the fact that you were baptized or you took the Lord's Supper. You'll trust in the fact that you were a citizen of what you thought was a Christian country. You'll trust in the fact that you never abused your spouse so that you've been a pretty good person at least some of the time. Friend, I'm here to tell you at that meeting, nothing you trust in at that meeting will work that God will and should judge you and I for our sins because he's a righteous, holy, and just God. And our only hope is the one who is our substitute, who has given himself to take the penalty for sinners. That's our Jesus. If you're already a believer in Jesus as the Son of God and by faith have invited him to be the Lord and Savior of your life, there's good news here. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Consider the completeness. Consider the certainty of that. He will reign. He is the great king who will bring justice to the earth. And he's also the friend of sinners. So maybe a final question today is, who are you? Are you an enemy of God? Or are you a friend of God? In the language of the Bible, we're all born enemies of God. It's not the language of a fundamentalist movement or the language of mean-spirited hellfire and damnation pulpiteers. It's the language of God's Word, the Bible, that we are all, by nature, God's enemies. He who has the Son has the life. If you don't have life, forgiveness, joy, peace, purpose in life, And I implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God through Jesus. Come home today. I guess if God had a Twitter account, I think he'd sum it up, the little book of Obadiah like this. I always stick up for my children. If you're a friend of God, a child of God, there may be days when he disciplines you, maybe days when he brings difficulties into your lives and 
order to correct your behavior just as he did with the Israelites. But even when God's not happy with your behavior, he's still got your back. When other people take advantage of you, abuse you, betray you, God is watching. No matter how smart, successful, or safe they think they are, God will not let them get away with it. Maybe you can relate to Israel and Edom today. Maybe you've been wrestling with your pride like I do. Or maybe there's someone in your life you failed to help when you should have. Or, or, or maybe, maybe on the other hand, maybe you've been on the receiving end of someone else's duplicity. You should know God is always there for you when you need him. And the best thing you can do is daily trust in him and walk with him. We exist as a church to help people begin and then grow in their faith journey with Jesus. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.